those of you that have been coming for the for the series during the last three months, um, you'll have recalled that the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, each has a particular chant that has traditionally been used for that recollection. And so I've been passing out and practicing together these different chants. And before I give the talk, I'd like to just kind of run through the chant. Supatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Ujupatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Nayapatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Samichipatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Yadidam Katari Purisa Yugani Atapurisa Pugala. Esa Bhagavato Savakasanko. Ahunayo, Pahunayo, Dakinayo, Anjali Karanio, Anutaram Punyaketam Lokasati. Now, in the monasteries in Thailand, we would hear this every day, multiple times a day. Because the ref doing the, the chants associated with the Buddha Dhamma and the Sangha were sort of the staple of every chanting period. So I'd like to just do this in call and response so that you just have a, a sense of the, of the words. Supatipano. Bhagavato. Savakasanko. Ujupatipano. Bhagavato. Savakasanko. Nayapatipano. Bhagavato, Savakasanko, Samichipatipano, Bhagavato, Savakasanko, Yadidam, Katari, Purisa, Yugani, Atta, Purisa, Pugala. Esa Bhagavato, Savakasanko, Ahunayo, Pahunayo, Dakinayo, Anjali Karanio, Anutaram, Punyaketam, Lokasati. The recollection of the Sangha, the Pali term for this practice is called Sangha Nusati, or recollection of Sangha. This term Sangha literally is translated as congregation, community, or gathering. There can be some differences of opinion, though, regarding the proper use of the term Sangha. Some people feel like it should be reserved only for the ordained community, for the monastic sangha. Others feel that it can be applied to any group of people who are meditating, any community of meditators. Is it a term that refers to a level of attainment such as the enlightened sangha? Does it mean 
in that attainment that one must be fully enlightened, such as the fourth level of, of, of awakening uh, known as the Arhant, or perhaps the line can be drawn at a couple of other key places, such as the first stage of awakening, when one becomes a stream enterer, or when doubt about the path has been completely um, dissipated and right view is permanently established. This deep understanding of the Dhamma can be realized by both lay practitioners as well as ordained practitioners. So like all words, the context that it's used in is very important for the understanding. The Buddhist dictionary defines Sangha as, Sangha is the name for the community of Buddhist monks, as the third of the three gems and the three refuges, that is Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. It applies to the Arya Sangha, the community of the four noble ones, which are the stream enterer, the once returner, the non-returner, and the arahant. So here, even in the dictionary, they are, they are blending both a usage that, that refers to an ordained community as well as the usage that refers to attainments. And those attainments are available to both ordained and lay practitioners. Personally, I've been a little reluctant to use the term Sangha to apply to any form of institutional gathering, whether it is a lay meditation community such as this community or this Sangha, or, if it ref or, or to use it just to designate an ordained status, which is just as much a, an institutional form as a gathering of lay practitioners. Although it's used so commonly to refer both to an ordained sangha or an ordained community and a, a, a vipassana group when we say we are going to sangha to meditate or um, we have sangha friends, met, which are basically mean other meditators, that we generally have adopted this usage in the West. And so even though I'm a little reluctant to take it on wholeheartedly, I do also use the term Sangha in these casual ways. I just prefer to use it a little sparingly so that it retains some of its potency as a powerful meditation object and refuge, so that it doesn't just refer to some kind of social grouping or membership in a group, because I don't see how anything that involves membership in a social institution can ever be a reliable refuge. Instructions for recollecting the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha all begin with a particular instruction. In the Visuddhimagga, it says, one who wants to develop the recollection of blank, in this case it's the recollection of community, should go into solitary retreat and recollect the special qualities of the community of noble ones as follows. The community of the blessed one's disciples has entered on the good way. The community of the blessed one's disciples has entered on the straight way. The community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the true way. 
the community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the proper way. That is to say, the four pairs of men, the eight persons, this community of the Blessed One's disciples is, work, is fit for gifts, fit for hospitality, fit for offerings, fit for reverential salutation as an incomparable field of merit for the world. That's basically what we chanted. Now, the other translations that are popularly used are more or less the same, but instead of saying fit for, they say worthy of. And instead of saying um, the community of the Blessed One's disciples, they say the order of the exalted one. More or less the same translation. But it's interesting to me that the instruction at the beginning says to recollect the community, one goes into solitary retreat and reflects upon these qualities. So it tells us very clearly that even though it's talking about a community gathering and it's talking about the qualities shared by members of this community, those qualities can be used as an object for meditation in solitary retreat. We can take those qualities into our meditation and contemplate them. At the time of the Buddha, this practice probably arose through a simple practice of praising people who had great attainment or using the reflection on great qualities to inspire the mind, to uplift the, um, the, the mood or the energy, to inspire somebody when they were sitting alone in the forest that, oh, other people have done this, so maybe we can too. It can be a way of reinforcing the virtues that would tie different people who are committed to this path together, even when they were perhaps practicing alone or in very small bands of, of friends. So that it would be a way of teaching values and teaching community values so that members of the Sangha and the community could, in, could move between different groups without feeling like they were part of a particular clique of their four buddies that they hang out with. But over, the, over time, it developed into a fairly standard reflection for lay people and for monastics. And it developed into a, a, way, of, a way of meditating, a way of contemplating and becoming concentrated on wholesome qualities. It is a meditation object and it is included in one of the 40 concentration objects that are practiced in the Theravada tradition. Now I'd like to look at this particular chant that we chanted. Supatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Ujupatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Nayapatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Samichipatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Yadidam Katari Purisa Yugani Atta Purisa Pugala. Esa Bhagavato Savakasanko. Ahunayo, Pahunayo, Dakinayo, Anjali Karaniyo, Anutaram Punyaketam Lokasati.
to just break it apart a little bit, supatipano refers to entering on the good way or practicing well. It translates as the good way, the right way, the way that is irreversible, the way that is in conformity with truth, the way that has no opposition or is regulated by the Dhamma. Bhagavato Savakasanko. Bhagavato, of course, means um, the Blessed One. Um, Savaka means disciple, and Sanko means the community, so the community of the Blessed One's disciples. And then f- that, that's repeated many times, and then the, the first term in each, wor- in each is change, changes. So in the chant in English, you know, we had said many times, the community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the good way. The community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the straight way. So we'll look at some of the, the different terms here. Supatipano was the first. And then Ujupatipano means entered on the straight way or being of upright conduct. And it refers to the upright virtue and the right view that is held by members of the Sangha. When, when it refers to this straight way, it refers to a mind that is not crooked, not twisted, and not torturous. It refers to the middle way that is not stuck at either of the extremes of sensual indulgence or self-mortification. So there's this virtuous uprightness and this straightness of path. It is also a way of, um, of referring to a being who has abandoned the twistings and the knots, the, the, the faults that occur when our, our speech or our actions are crooked or twisted. Um, the Visuddhimagga actually uses this interesting English word called the warpedness. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? Do you ever feel that your, your, your actions lead to a sense of, your be, of, of, a, of a warpedness of your being or a warpedness of your mind? Um, it's, it refers to um, this straightness is something that is simply not distorted by wrong action or wrong view. Now, Nayapatipano refers to entering on the straight way or the right path. And this straightness, this right path, is a path that leads to Nibbana, that knows the right aim, that knows the, the, the final liberation. And so one doesn't necessarily, in this reference, um, have attained to it, but has entered on the right path. So this also implies, uh, this reference might support the notion that the Sangha refers to somebody who has really entered on the path, which would be somebody, say, who has realized the first stage of awakening, or who has overcome all doubt in the path, but not necessarily to the final stage of, of arhatship. Samichipatipano means entered on the proper way or practicing correctly. And here, this refers to the correctness of the path and the way of practicing the eightfold path that is a direct path to awakening, a correct path, a right path that leads to the end of suffering. 
And there is a clarity then in this training, a, a, a properness in the way that one undertakes the training. And this is worthy of respect and veneration. Now, some of these, the differences uh, are quite subtle. Even in English, they overlap quite a bit. Yadidam is a way of saying, that is to say. So, yadidam katari purisa, yadidam katari purisa ugani atta purisa pugala is, that is to say, so all of these things that we just said, that is to say, the four pairs of persons and the eight kinds of individuals. Now, what are the four pairs of persons? and the eight kinds of individuals. The four pairs refers to one who has attained the path, and the pair part of it is the fruit of each stage of enlightenment, which includes the first stage of awakening, which is that of stream enterer, the second stage, which is once returner, the third stage is non-returner, and the fourth stage is arhat. Now, this may seem very traditional and kind of archaic Buddhism. Um, but don't worry about it. Just listen and sense underneath it a sense of potential for growth and for realization that can develop gradually. This, um, this understanding of the pairs, which in, in the, the traditional language is path and fruit, describes a moment that occurs when somebody has a profound realization of these stages of awakening. Basically, when one realizes the what's called nibbana, or the deathless element, or the touches the unconditioned, one could say. In the moment that the, in that encounter with ultimate reality, Certain um, defilements of mind, what are called fetters, are, um, are removed from the mind stream. So with the first stage of awakening, the fetter of doubt and of attachment to rites and rituals, the belief that you know, taking a bath could, um, could lead to enlightenment, um, wrong view, um, these are abandoned at that, at that stage of, um, of awakening. And so that's called the path moment, is when one has really entered the path. But immediately following that is the mind experiencing the fruit of the ending of those defilements. And so path and fruit happen immediately after each other. And it's inevitable. The path inevitably is followed by the fruit. So you can't just have a path and get stuck there and not have the fruit of it. No, it always, always happens that path is followed by fruit. So it's a little, it seems a little strange that they would call it the four pairs of persons to divide these up. Or in the next set, the eight individuals, which take those four persons, which are the four kinds of um, of the, 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 the path moment of the stream enterer who's entered the first stage of enlightenment and eradicated those, um, those fetters. And then the fruit of it. it. It's described as being like two different beings, you know, the pairs of persons, because it's almost like at that moment one has 
almost been reborn, one could say. It's because the mind is different without those defilements. And so it's described as being like one has now become a noble one at that moment, from an ordinary worldling kind of person to a noble one. And then the same kind of distinction is made at the second stage of awakening when um, greed and hatred are diminished, greatly diminished. The third stage when greed and hatred are eradicated. And then the fourth stage when the subtler fetters, fetters of restlessness and ignorance and conceit and desire for uh, uh, concentration attainments and formless states has also been, um, been, been abandoned. So each one, each of these moments has this path moment and this fruit moment that can be defined as four pairs of persons if you divide them as pairs, or eight individuals if you take them as, you know, being different. But we're still talking about what we would call one person. <laughs> So just to have a sense of what that refers to, so you don't think we're talking about kind of a, a lineup of different people or that you really do like take a whole new physical, you know, like a, uh, you wouldn't have a different name. Just say that. You wouldn't have a different name. You'd still have the same parents. You'd have the same sister and brother. This um, reference to the four pairs of persons and the eight kinds of individuals embedded in this chant also gives um, support to the a notion that the term sangha refers to an enlightened sangha, not an ordained sangha, nor just a, a group of lay people together. So this kind of, in this kind of context, of the taking refuge in them and using it as an, as an object for meditation, it's inclining towards, the, um, towards this specific use of the term Sangha to refer to um, beings, a community of beings who have uh, substantial realization. Now, ahunayo, pahunayo, dakinayo, anjali karaniyo means fit for gifts or worthy of gifts, fit for hospitality, fit for offerings, fit for reverential salutation, is worthy of offerings, hospitality, gifts, and salutation. So ahuna literally means sacrifice. Now, this can be compared to the offerings given at the Brahmin's fire because it was believed that sacrifices would bear fruit at the time of the Buddha. And there were many instances in the Buddha's teachings when he would take a particular local tradition or convention, a ritual, and use aspects of it or take the language and turn it to mean something else, to kind of draw people away from uh, what he would consider to be wrong understanding and guide them towards something that would lead to a liberating insight. So in the, in the Brahmanic tradition, there was a belief that properly, um, uh, properly performed rituals with fire or water, with bathing or sacrifices, 
would produce merit and benefits and purify the mind and lead to happy states. And so there was a kind of a, a tradition of sacrifice at the time of the Buddha. And he criticized this notion that purification does, he said, he taught that purification will not come by bathing, no matter how much you bathe. It will not come through austerity practices, through suffering, through standing on one legs or sleeping on a bed of nails. And it will not come through animal sacrifice or fire sacrifice. He repeatedly linked the development of, of the growth of what's called merit, that force of virtue and purification to one's actions, actions that are virtuous, mental actions that are wholesome and physical actions that are kind and compassionate and generous or develop concentration and mindfulness and are ways of, of developing virtue, concentration, and wisdom. So at the time in his, in, um, in the, at the at the time in his culture, he was countering a very predominant and prevalent um, belief in how and way of undertaking religious practices. Just simply to teach people that the blessings of the guru, the blessings of the deity, or the blessings that come from water and fire sacrifice will not lead to freedom was a radical thing. Instead, he taught that one needed to purify the mind of ignorance and attachment to realize that peace and to experience that blessing. So sacrificing was now used in his language to refer to offerings. To offer or to sacrifice one's material possessions, to offer shelter, food, or medicine to support the Sangha was a way of making a sacrifice that was wholesome because it brought the mind into um, a practice of generosity and into a wholesome state. It was a virtuous action. And so here that this term of sacrifice is referring to practices that are on this path of the development of virtue concentration and wisdom. Now, ahunayo is, refers to um, worthy of gifts. Pahunayo is worthy of receiving hospitality. Dakinayo refers to offerings, something that's given out of faith and will bring benefit to the person who gives it. Now, Anjali refers to this gesture where the um, hands come together, and this is a gesture called Anjali. Uh, and it's a gesture of reverence or of respect. It's a, a gesture of salutation, and it's a very common gesture that's used um, to greet people in a respectful way and also to um, even listen respectfully or to compose oneself with this, um, this uh, hand gesture of Anjali. 
So a Sangha that is, is a community that is truly worthy of gifts, fit for gifts, worthy to receive the support of others. Anuttaram Punyaketam Lokasati says an incomparable field of merit for the world or the supreme field of merit for the world. Now this idea of merit is an interesting one because we don't always like to think of our actions as producing merit because sometimes we think it sounds so greedy in a way. We want to instead be anonymous or be um, uh, uh, not do a good action out of a selfish motive to gain merit. But the growth of merit and the benefits that come through meritorious actions, through these sacrifices, through these offerings, are compared to corn and wheat that is grown in a king's field. When one makes an offering to somebody who is of the Sangha, whether it's a Sangha of practitioners, an ordained Sangha, or perhaps here it's referring to a, a community of beings or a person who has realized some degree of awakening and is truly on the path of liberation. It's said that they are a field of merit for the world, so that when somebody gives a gift to that person, it will bear fruit and it will bear good positive fruit. It's described like this field of this king's field because a king's field is not neglected. A king's field is tended and nurtured and irrigated and it will ripen and grow in abundance. It's the king has the most, has, claims the, 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 the land that is the most fertile. And so it's considered to be the most fertile ground for literally planting seeds of Kama. And so in Asia, you'll, you'll see that people, when, if there's a, a practitioner or a monk or a nun who is known to be of great attainment, people will want to give them gifts. They will want to support them. There will be the movement of the heart that comes just when you respect somebody, when you're inspired by them. You want to sustain them. You want them to be well and happy and continue their good works. But there's this extra component of also wanting to plant seeds of merit because those seeds then bear fruit in your own future life. So somebody who gives a gift, say, to some enlightened monk in Thailand will might make an aspiration. May the merit of this gift lead to a happy rebirth in a heavenly realm or whatever it is they want. You know, it could be anything. But they might consider that that action of giving a gift to be literally a planting seed that will bear the fruit in their own future. It's not considered to be selfish. This is considered to be an understanding of how actions bear fruits. It's not considered to be a, oh, some kind of, kind of greedy way of getting a payback. <laughs> Gifts given to the Sangha are considered 
are entering into this field of virtue, this field of wisdom. And it's a powerful field. It's believed that these gifts are so potent that they will support just about whatever the wish is of the giver. In fact, it's said in the Buddhist text that if somebody encounters a Buddha and makes an aspiration as they give even one grain of rice, that um, whatever their wish was will indeed come true. So I guess you have to be a little careful what you wish for. Make it a good one. <laughs> Now, there are several classic benefits that are associated with this practice of recollecting the Sangha. And in the Visuddhimagga, it says, when one is recollecting the Sangha, his mind is not obsessed by greed, nor obsessed by hatred, or obsessed by delusion. His mind has rectitude on that occasion, being inspired by the Sangha. Now, the recollection of the Sangha has this effect of making the mind strong and upright and yet flexible. It makes the mind, in a way, healthy and proficient and effective. Because a mind that is thinking about enlightened qualities or qualities of a community that are practicing for enlightenment is a mind that is not obsessed by the hindrances. It's a mind that is happy, that's somewhat hopeful, and that is developing delight and joy and contentment. So even though the mind, that the, the recollection may not bring, a this may not be as stable a meditation object, say, as one of the practices that could lead to jhana, it still has the potential to produce all the jhana factors that are equivalent to what's called access concentration or very, very strong concentration. So in a traditional concentration practice, one will use the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha as a way of energizing attention, uplifting the mind, inspiring the practice, or inducing faith. It's a way of encouraging ourselves. Yes, yes, we can do it. Others have done it. There's these good qualities. This is possible. In one discourse, it says, um, yeah, from the Anguttara Nikaya, it says, when a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata thus, on that occasion his mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. His mind is straight with the Sangha as its object. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains the inspiration of the meaning, the inspiration of the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. When he is gladdened, rapture arises. For one uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm. One calm in body feels happy. For one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. This is called a noble disciple who dwells evenly amidst an uneven generation, who dwells unafflicted amidst an afflicted generation, who has entered upon the stream of the Dhamma and develops the recollection of the Sangha.
in the Visuddhi Magga, it says, when a bhikkhu is devoted to this recollection of the community, he is respectful and deferential toward the community. He attains fullness of faith. He has much happiness and bliss. He conquers fear and dread. He is able to endure pain. He comes to feel as if he were living in the community's presence. And his body, when the recollection of the Sangha's special qualities dwells in it, becomes a worthy, as worthy of veneration as an upasatha house where the community has met. His mind tends towards the attainment of the community's special qualities. When he encounters an opportunity for transgression, he has awareness of conscience and shame as vividly as if he were face to face with the community. And if he penetrates no higher, he is at least headed for a happy destination. This can be a very powerful reflection because when we hold these qualities dear, then we don't transgress. We actually want to become like that which we respect. Why don't we end with a moment of silence? <laughs> Supatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Ujupatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Nayapatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Samichipatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko. Yadidam Katari Purisa Yugani Atapurisa Pugala. Esa Bhagavato Savakasanko. Ahunayo, Pahunayo, Dakinayo, Anjali Karanio, Anutaram Punyaketam Lokasati. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.